Susan Boyle was not what people expected. She walked out on the stage of the TV show Britain's Got Talent and everyone was laughing at her. Here is a woman who was older. She was in an outdated dress. She had unkempt hair. She had a very cheeky grin and just had this dream of one day becoming a world famous singer. Nobody expected any talent from her. But after her solo edition, the judges were stunned and the audience gave her a standing ovation. No one was laughing at her then. You see, she was the champion that no one was expecting. When we get to the life of Esther... We find someone who does not have the pedigree. She does not have the prominent name. She does not have the wealthy family. She does not have popularity in which people would notice her. And yet, she was the champion that no one expected. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Esther chapter 2. Last week, we launched into a new study of the book of Esther as a faith family called Unseen Sovereign. We're discovering together how God is at work behind the scenes, and he's working for the good of his people and for the fame of his name. That nowhere in the book of Esther does God's name show up. Nowhere in the book of Esther is there a miraculous moment. Nowhere in the book of Esther does it say, thus says the Lord. God is silent throughout the book, and yet, though he is unseen, he is still at work, working for the good of his people and the fame of his name. We saw last week in chapter one, where God was setting the stage to bring forth a deliverer who would save his people from extermination. King Ahasuerus, also known by his Greek name, King Xerxes, he throws a party of the century for the people. When he wants to show off his wife, Queen Vashti, as a trophy wife, she says no. So the king removes her from her position. He strips her of her title. Well, chapter 2 begins with the question in the mind of the reader. You'll notice in chapter 2 that we see first the question, who will be queen? So between chapter 1, verse 22... In chapter 2, verse 1, several years have passed. In between these two chapters, Xerxes, he's gone to battle against the Greeks in which he has suffered a humiliating loss. And so he returns back to Susa and he does not have a queen. Look at Esther chapter 2, verse 1. Sometime later, when King Ahasuerus' rage had cooled down, he remembered Vashti, what she had done and what was decided against her. So what is a king to do without a queen? Well, unsure of what to do next, the king's personal attendants offer a suggestion. Verse 2. The king's personal attendants suggested, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in each province of his kingdom so that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem at the fortress of Susa. Put them under the supervision of Hegai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, and give them the required beauty treatments. Then the young woman who pleases the king will become queen instead of Vashti. 
people. This suggestion pleased the king, and he did accordingly. And so King Ahasuerus, he initiates the process of looking for a new queen to replace Vashti. Well, who will that woman be? Well, this leads us to the answer. Number two, Esther becomes queen. What we see here is fascinating because the book of Esther is laid out in a similar template as to a movie that you and I would watch. The opening scenes of a movie, it's chapter one here, where the plot is revealed. And then we see that the main characters are introduced. Look at verse five. In the fortress of Susa, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. He had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took King Jeconiah of Judah into exile. Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin Hadessa, that is Esther, because she had no father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was extremely good looking. When her father and mother died, Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. So the question we have to ask when we get to verse 5 is, who are they? Okay, how do these two people fit into the story? What is a Jew living in Persia as an adopted daughter of, of Mordecai, and they're actually cousins, what does that have to do with King Xerxes looking for a queen? Well, let's read on. Look at verse 8. When the king's command and edict became public knowledge, and when many young women were gathered at the fortress of Susa under Hegai's supervision, Esther was taken to the palace and into the supervision um, of Hegai, keeper of the women. Okay, now it's starting to come together. Okay, Esther has been brought to the palace, and she is now the potential wife of the king. Now, whether Esther was brought to the harem against her will, or if she was more than willing to go, we don't know. We don't know her motivation for going. But we do know is that there was something special about Esther. She gained favor in the eyes of Hegai and the supervisor of all of these women. Look at verse 9. It says, the young woman, which is Esther, pleased him and gained his favor so that he accelerated the process of the beauty treatments and the special diet that she received. He assigned seven hand-picked female servants to her from the palace and transferred her and her servants to the harem's best quarters. Well, now Mordecai, her adopted father, wanted to protect her and help her in any way that he could. He could. And, and so we see him telling her in the text to keep her Jewish ethnicity quiet. It's a secret. And like any good father, he was concerned about Esther. Verse 10, Esther did not reveal her ethnicity or her family background because Mordecai had ordered her not to make them known. Every day, Mordecai took a walk in front of the harem's courtyard to learn how Esther was doing and to see what was happening to her. And what's interesting here is as Esther is now there with these women from all across the nation, the question then becomes, well, what did they have to go through to prepare to meet the king? We'll look at verse 12. During the year, before each young woman's turn to go to King Ahasuerus, the harem regulation required her to receive beauty treatments with the oil of myrrh for six months and then the perfumes and cosmetics for another six months. When the young woman would go to the king, she was given whatever she requested to take with her from the harem to the palace. She would go in the evening 
And in the morning, she would return to a second harem under the supervision of the king's eunuch, Shashgaz, keeper of the concubines. She never went to the king again unless he desired her and summoned her by name. You see, what we see here is each one would go through an entire year's worth of manies and petties. What we see here are spa treatments and special foods and the most elaborate jewelry and the finest of clothes. She would have one night with the king. And after the one night, she was then taken to another building. She was taken to another harem where she would live for the rest of her life as a widow. The only time she would come back into the king's presence is if he requested her by name. Now remember, a search was made for all of the beautiful women in each of the 127 provinces under King Xerxes' authority. Now, first century historian Josephus, he estimated that there were more than 400 women that were going through this process. There are other scholars that said that there were thousands of women that were going through this. Now, whatever the number, the chances of Esther being chosen as the next queen, these were not good odds. But remember, God is the unseen sovereign. Even when we do not see him, he is at work. He is working in the backgrounds to work for our good and for his glory. Please understand, God is the one who is writing the story of your life. Watch what happens next, verse 15. Esther was the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had adopted her as his own daughter. When her turn came to go to the king, she did not ask for anything except what he got, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, suggested. Esther gained favor in the eyes of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Ahasuerus in the palace in the 10th month, the month to Beth in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women. She won more favor and approval from him than did in any of the other virgins. He placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Vashti. The king held a banquet for all of his officials and staff. It was Esther's banquets. He freed his provinces from tax payments and gave gifts worthy of the king's bounty. Wow. How did this happen? How did a Jewish orphan girl become the queen of Persia? Now remember last week how God sets the stage to display his glory. Well, God was working. And though he does not speak in this book, and though he does not visibly reveal himself, he is orchestrating every detail to accomplish his purpose. Do not miss this. God is working in and through every detail of your life to accomplish his greater purposes. Every detail of your life, God is working through it for something bigger than you can see. God knew that the Jews would be threatened with genocide. He knew that Haman would rise up and seek to exterminate every Jew in Persia. And it's amazing that God, he knew all the people, all of the places, all of the timing, all of the circumstances, every minute detail, God was working behind the scenes in an unexpected way to bring forth a deliverer. 
He would bring forth someone who would deliver, who would rescue God's people. Who would that person be? A beautiful Jewish girl living in Susa. But you see, Esther is pointing us forward to an even greater deliverer. Esther is pointing us to one who would come and save God's people from eternal death. Esther is pointing us to Jesus who is the greater deliverer who came and through his death on the cross and victorious resurrection has made a way for all of us to be delivered from the coming death that is coming. Jesus is the greater and better Esther. So as we look at this text, what are some takeaways? What does this look like for us today? The verse is this. Number one, God loves to use nobodies like us. God loves to use nobodies like us. No one, no one would have ever expected Esther to rise up to this position. She was in a, a nobody in this culture. She was a Jew living in captivity. She was an orphan. Both, both of her parents had died, verse 7. Who would have ever thought that a captive would become queen? Who would have thought that the Jewess would become the empress? A former orphan who becomes a monarch. This is a picture of what God has done for us in the gospel. You see, all of us, before we knew Christ, we were captive to sin. We were slaves to sin. We were, Ephesians 2, dead in our sins and trespasses. We were captive to our fleshly desires. We were by nature objects of wrath, Paul says. We were spiritually and morally bankrupt. We were selfish. We were enemies of God. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love for us, he made us alive with Christ, and he loves us, and he calls us to himself, and he saves us by his grace. We are just like Esther, as those who don't deserve to be children of the king, and yet that's who we are through Christ. Esther was promoted from a captive to a queen as an act of sovereign grace. She was a Jew living in Babylon. This was not her citizenship. She did not belong here. She was living in a land that was not her home. And yet God, by his grace, raised her up to be queen over the entire nation. By grace, verse 17, she is crowned by the king. Now, what a picture of the gospel. That God, by his grace, he will one day reward you and crown you, 2 Corinthians 5, at the judgment seat of Christ, in which he will reward his children for their faithfulness to him. And what's even more amazing is that we are seated with him. The king rewards our faithfulness, and then we, in his mind, are already seated in the heavenlies. Paul says in Ephesians 2, he also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You see, because of Christ, you are already seated in the heavenlies. You are seated with Christ, ruling and reigning with him. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, do you not know that you will be judging angels? It's amazing to think about how God raises us up. He takes us from enemies. He makes us friends. He takes us from orphans and he adopts us. And then he seats us with Christ in the heavens. You see, we were just like Esther. We were spiritual orphans. We were fatherless. We were captives in a land that was not our home. And yet Christ changed all of that. You see, God loves to use nobodies like us. You'd be thinking, there's no way God could use me. I'm not smart enough. I don't make enough money. I've got a dysfunctional family. I've got an ugly past. I'm not very strong. I don't have a lot of money. You see, here's the good news. God loves to use nobodies like us. He loves to. Why? Because nobodies can't take any of the credits. You see, God loves to use the ordinary to do the extraordinary to display his glory. Which means we have nothing to boast in except Christ. That's why Paul says in Galatians 6, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, for some of you, you are too prideful for God to use you. Because you know that anything that comes from your work, you're going to get the glory. And so God says, I'm going to use nobodies. I'm going to look for the weak. I'm going to look for those who have no way of getting any of the glory by themselves. I'm going to use the weak to shame the strong. Isn't it interesting that three times Paul asks Jesus to take away the thorn in the flesh. And every time he said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is perfected in weakness. So Paul says, I will gladly boast all the more in my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Doubters would have said about Esther, there's no way a Jew can rise to power in Babylon, now Persia. There's no way a Jewish woman will have power over 127 provinces. There's no way an adopted child in that culture could have impact on a lot of people. But it's as if God says, oh really? You forgot to check with me. There may be doubters in your life who are saying, there's no way God can forgive you for what you've done in your past. There's no way God can use a nobody like you. There's no way you can have impact because of all of the weaknesses that you have. And it's as if God says, oh, really? You haven't checked with me on that. God loves to use nobodies like us. He loves to display his power through those who are weak. He loves to shame the strong and take those who are not to show those who have and those who are his power on display. God says, I will use the weak. I will use the forgotten. I will use nobodies who have nothing to boast in except for me. 
You see, God used Esther and God can use you. But I want you to see secondly, not only does God love to use nobodies like us, but God's favor changes your life. God's favor changes your life. Imagine Esther there at the palace. She's surrounded by the most beautiful women from all over of Persia, 127 provinces. It has the beauty pageant atmosphere. There's perfumes and stylish hairdos and makeup and the drama. Could you imagine the drama? You can imagine the insecurity in the palace of these women who are comparing themselves to each other. They're looking at one another about who's the prettiest and they're breaking out into cliques. The in crowd and the out crowd. Who's the king going to choose? Who gets to become queen? Who gets the final rose? You can see all of the intricacies of this messy situation. But notice verse 9. Esther pleased Hegai and gained his favor. Verse 15. Esther gained favor in the eyes of everyone who saw her. Verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all the other women. She won more favor and approved from him, approval from him that did than did any of the other virgins. That, that word for favor, it means covenant-keeping love. It's the word said. Oh, it's a beautiful word. It's God's kindness and grace towards people. You see, this word is most often used in the Old Testament as a reference of God's love towards his people. Okay, here we see the favor of God upon Esther. We see God showing his kindness, not only to Esther though. We see his kindness shown to Joseph as he is a slave in Egypt. And yet he gained favor in the eyes of his jailer, in the eyes of Potiphar, in the eyes of Pharaoh. We see this in the life of Daniel, who gains the favor of God as the Lord shows kindness upon Daniel as he is serving under Nebuchadnezzar and his staff. Well, here Esther has gained the favor of Hegai, the favor of King Xerxes, and the favor of everyone who saw her. Now, ultimately, God's favor is placed upon his son, who is covenant-keeping love. Jesus is the kindness of God. Jesus is the grace of God. And when you trust in Christ, God's favor is upon your life. God loves to place his favor upon the lives of his children. Now, it's not because you are awesome. It's because he is awesome. The favor of God is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so God shows his favor upon his children who trust in his one and only son. Now, evidence of God's favor is seen in Christ-like character. We'll see it here in the text. Esther was submissive, wise, and humble. When Mordecai directed her, verse 10, not to reveal her ethnicity, she obeyed. She trusted and submitted herself to her father. And as we'll see later, withholding this information about her ethnicity, it actually enabled her to reverse Haman's plan to kill the Jews. You see, submission is rarely easy, but it's a mark of godly character. 
Here we see Esther. She was wise. She sought the wise counsel of Hegai. She listened, verse 15, to his counsel. She was teachable. What we also see is when it was Esther's turn to go see the king, she did not get all bedazzled up with jewelry. She was humble. Verse 15, she did not ask for anything to take with her except what Hegai recommended. See, instead of focusing on her outward appearance, she focused more on her character. See, Esther was both beautiful and humble. Her modesty and her humility, it impressed everyone who saw her and it gained her favor. Women, hear me on this. Spend more time applying the gospel to your heart than cosmetics to your face. That's what we see happening here with Esther. See, Peter says in 1 Peter 3, Don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry, but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Proverbs 31 verse 30, charm is deceptive, beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. You see, God's favor was upon Esther, and it was seen in her character. God's favor is yours when you believe the gospel. And when you trust in Christ, his favor is upon you, and it is seen outwardly in the character of Christ that is reproduced in you. Third and finally, I want you to see that God blesses the world through his people. When Esther became queen, the king, he throws, verse 18, a great banquet for all his officials and staff. And it was Esther's banquets. Look to how her coronation affected the kingdom. Verse 18, he freed his provinces from tax payments and gave gifts worthy of the king's bounty. So for a period of time, the king gave his people rest from taxation. I got all the CPAs in here who are thinking, yes and Amen. He gave out gifts to people like it was Christmas. You can imagine the celebration that took place throughout the king's vast domain over the king's wedding to Esther. You see, her presence with the king, it brought blessing to the world. May I say to you, your presence with the king, King Jesus, it must lead to blessing to the world. There's a sense in which your relationship with Christ and your submission to his authority in your life must lead to, it must compel blessing. It must bring to those around you goodness because of what Christ has done in you and he is within you through the gospel. This is what we're to labor for. We labor for the good of the city. We are to work for blessing of those around us. You see, before God sent his people into captivity in Babylon, listen to what he told them. Many of us know Jeremiah 29, 11, but listen to Jeremiah 29, verse seven. The Lord said, seek the prosperity of the city to which I have sent you as exiles. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for if it prospers, you too will prosper. So the Lord is saying, you're about to go into captivity. You're about to go into slavery. But I want you to pray for the good of the city. I want you to work for the good of the city. Bring blessing to those around you. So here's the question. Is our community flourishing because you are in it? Is our community flourishing because of you? 
That's a question I've been wrestling with this week is, is our community better because of me, because of Christ in me? Is it leading to blessing of those around us? He said, you belong to the king, beloved. And our relationship with King Jesus is to bring blessing to the world around us. As believers, we are sent by God to where we live for the good of the city. We bring blessing to the world around us. We seek the welfare of the people, which leads us to our impact point, and it's this. Here's the challenge. This week, I want to challenge you to pray for our city every day and then to serve people in a practical way. It's to pray and to serve. That's what we see there in Jeremiah 29, 7. We see prayer, which we're we're, we're praying to the Lord on, on the behalf of the city, but we're also seeking the prosperity. We're seeking the welfare of the people around us. As a mission, as a church, we exist to invest in people who will impact their world for Jesus. It is right and it is good to gather in here to worship and to sing and to hear the word of God read and applied to our lives. Yes and amen. But it cannot stay here. It must always lead to an outworking for the good of our neighbor. Let us not be a people who are hearers only. Let us be doers of the word who then go out off this campus for the good of our neighbor so that the nations and our neighbors might treasure Christ above all things. So as you look around the community around you and see the problems and the frustrations and the issues that are taking place, the the answer is not, let's let the government take care of it. The answer is not, maybe someone else will take care of it. But it's, I'm going to seek the welfare of the city. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to serve, and I want to do whatever I can to help push back against darkness. I want to bring order to the chaos. I want to bring love where there is hate. I want to bring hope where there is darkness. And I want the light of Jesus to be exposed out into our community so that those around us might see and treasure Christ above all things. You see, while Jesus was up on the cross, they were laughing at him. They were mocking him. Little did they know that three days later, they wouldn't be laughing anymore. You see, Jesus is the ultimate champion that no one was looking for. And through your faith in Christ, God has a plan for you. And it's to work for the good of those around you so that they might treasure Jesus above all things. It's amazing how God took a nobody and just made her available and used her to impact a nation. Imagine what God will do with you and I as we daily deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and we follow Jesus. Jesus.